are episode number nine. Next week is number 10. Um, starting to hit double digits. That's freaking awesome to me. But welcome to Jammers in the Rough. It's kind of us just kind of vibing with you. I know we brought special guests in for, I mean, for, for a few of them. But at the end of the day, it's kind of just us three hanging out talking disc golf. So as usual, my co-hosts are Cody, the absolute worst. Uh, Josh figured it out winter with his putting. That's my reference. He's getting it. And myself, Paige, as usual. So let's get started. Let's talk. Vegas, baby. I know we talked about, I, we don't need to talk about me, but <laughs> let's talk about Vegas and everything but Paige and how he did. I sure. want to hear your guys' impressions. And I don't know where to begin because there's so much to talk about with Vegas. Are we allowed to spoil it yet? Like, can we talk yeah, about it? I think we're like, a week have, later. We, have we reached that threshold yet? Like, we can say, like, it's been over for a week. We can talk Drew about Gibson it. Drew Gibson won. Katrina Allen won. Consider it spoiled. We're here to talk about it, guys. I'm sorry. You guys had a week to catch up. And if you don't know, we waited a week, and we're going to wait a week. So we won't talk about Memorial this week, but we're going to wait a week in between events so you guys can catch up. If you don't want to be spoiled, wait a couple weeks. But, I mean... It's live on Jomez. It's live on Gatekeeper Media. So we're live here talking about it. Yeah, well, I guess I mean, not live on Jomez, but ooh. it's live. Well, like it's live as in like you have access to the it. The feed is accessible. Exactly. Yeah. Come on. Jeez, Josh. Jomez Hammer police. Man. Like every, guy. Seems like every year Jomez steps it up even more so. Well, they signed an agreement with the DGPT, right? That they're now going to be like certain coverage, yeah, for DGN or whatever. Uh, DGN, Gatekeeper, um, Jomez, and what's the third one? Slomez. I don't know. No. <laughs> what's the third one? Names. I can't think of right now. But uh, Gatekeeper is doing the. Wait, um, are they the guys that do the OTB, or is that Gatekeeper? It's Gatekeeper, Jomez, and there's one more. I know. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're supposed to be more informed than this, guys, and we usually are, but... That's why we have smartphones. Paige is we, on his. We throw ourselves curveballs for this very reason, to see how on top of it we are. Uh, GK Pro, you... Gatekeeper, and Jomez. JK Pro, that's what it is. GK. GK, even worse. So, nah, GK Pro is always legit. It is. No, I'm saying I was I was even worse that I forgot that information. No, you were like, insulting that media company, and that media company is pretty solid. Uh, I would not do that. <laughs> I am the worst, though, so. But, yeah, no, I think those contracts are big, and I think, I mean, having a steady place to go is awesome. I mean, everyone knows where to go for Sunday night football and everything. Like, And I think it gets convoluted when you see, like, basketball, and you're like, well, the Blazers, we're with this weird streamer now, and now you can't catch any of their home games. Like it gets frustrating, so I'm excited mm. to see it. And Jomez paid what five hundred thousand in order to get the rights to it for three years. Yeah, for three years. Yeah, I know it's only for a certain amount of years. I'm pretty sure it's three years. Yeah, that could pay off though. I think it's already paying off. I think it's paid off, and the fact that you know they're continuing to do that is well. They probably to... make a substantial amount of money from their YouTube streams. I mean, they opened up another YouTube of just short clips, right? Oh. They have like Jomez shorts and it's all like 30 seconds to a minute videos, which I don't understand. Like do that on Instagram. Why are you doing it on YouTube? Like I'll scroll. Like if that was on like YouTube, I'd be scrolling those videos like crazy. But Instagram is like, I don't want to be like two minutes worth of ads for a 30 second clip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe YouTube pays better. 
Yeah. That could be it. I mean, that's a very real possibility. Because a lot of got that money. A lot of those payment plans on the streaming sites are for if somebody starts to goes from start to finish on the clip. And so doing 30 second clips, you have a lot higher chance of somebody going all the way through it. Yeah. I did not know that. You have to watch the whole clip or is it but I mean they have advertisements like every I guess it depends on what you watch. Sometimes it's every couple minutes, sometimes it's like the whole thing. Yeah, well, there's different like pay payouts for different things, but one of the major ones is somebody finishing your your video, and mm. how many people do that? Well, we don't came here to talk about this, so let's talk about Vegas. Let's start with FBO. Uh, where do we begin? Europeans came and they didn't conquer, um, they, but they, they conquer, showed up. They yeah, and they did something very big, which they showed who what they can do. And it was an awesome show. That's one thing with the FPO is I feel like every year that passes, it gets more and more enjoyable to watch. They are yeah. bombing those discs. Um, they're having crazy shots. Um, and having the Europeans come over is, it's a treat. Cause now it's not just like ran by Katrina Allen and Paige Pierce. <laughs> and they were in the top two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- th- those are like, they're always on lead cards. They're always on Jomez. Like they're consistently dominating the sport and to have more, a bigger pool of dominators is that's just good TV. That's just yeah. good TV, baby. I will say though, and I will like without gaming too much into like the card, I did watch some of it live, like on DGN and man, we talk about bad about some of the, like the male commentators for MPO female commentators are tough to like stick it through like i had a tough time watching it last weekend and them doubting Paige pierce is like yes i like you can't be results based Paige pierce threw it out of bounds and that wasn't good at all but the way they were kind of talking negatively about it and then they rip and then kind of just continuing to doubt like this is a five-time world champion clearly they're very like in tune with what their thing is and you know playing that course like that doesn't come into play unless you absolutely shank a shot, you know, that green where she went out of. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like, for me, is this a shank? Like, but you go from it from there, like it's in my range. And so then it's very within Paige Pierce's range. Like, I don't understand why before she stepped up and they're like, Oh, she's looking at like going for it. Oh, she shouldn't go for it. Like really starting to kind of just like, you know, we see like last year when people like some of the commentators were like cheering on their friends and getting hate because they're actively cheering against certain people, that whole conversation. Um, this is like the opposite of where they're actually kind of like, you know, just spreading seeds of like, whoa, for like that on the oh. championship hole versus it's been like, obviously they did enough to get there and pushing it. Like trust them, don't doubt them and support them. Like that thought that was crazy. And I didn't like it very much at all. <laughs> Yeah, I You're just saying the commentary part you didn't like. You like the competition, part. just the commentary. Yeah, the competition was great. Who was like, the commentators? I, I can't remember. See, I didn't care enough to look them up. I just remember hearing Philo's sweet, sweet voice. Oh, I love Philo. On the well, NPO. I, I could just, show, he right? could just read me a, a lullaby or a bedtime story. And I just... Mm. So, yeah, like Nate Sexton and Philo podcast. Like, I, I that. Uh, I believe it was when, when uh, Kristen was throwing... And she was like smiling on the camera. I'm almost positive it was it was uh, in Vegas. It was Vegas, but Kristen Tatar was was smiling, 
And one of the the commentators on live was like, oh yeah, Finland is like rated uh, the number one country for happiness. And the female commentator responded with, oh really? I uh, read that they're the number one uh, rated for suicide rate. But I guess they're not mutually exclusive. And I was just taken back. Like what a statistic to throw out while I'm trying to watch this golf. Yeah. Well, and also like, like, why do you got to pour shade on a fun stat and bring back, like, to this negativity, like, randomly? Yeah. Like, if you don't have anything to talk about, there's, like, a lot of commentators that just sit there in silence. Like, I always like when Big Germ, like, his joke falls flat and nobody says anything. And then he has to, like, backtrack and kind of explain it. Like, well, we're moving on from that. <laughs> like, you know, because, like, sometimes you got to let these things, like, fall flat. But you don't always have to be talking. You don't always have to be saying something. And definitely you don't be freaking taking it in that super weird dark negative direction that makes it such a hard thing to watch yeah that's, it, a, that's definitely a hot take right there like yeah, <laughs> my mom, or my mom my uh my wife was in the kitchen and uh yeah right uh my wife was in the kitchen and i'm watching this live and she even stopped to be like what did they just say I'm like i'm blown away too i'm blown away too um so what you're saying is we need some new commentators on there I mean, Jomez, I, I work for cheap. I work for cheap. Everyone has uh, redeeming qualities, including the commentators. There's some. There's some good, good strides of of commentating on both MPO and FPO, but it's just not consistent. Yeah, and I think it's finding those people like, you know, that are the goats. Like, you know, it doesn't even have to be the Jomez three. It's like Philo. We know Philo is great. We know Brian Earhart's great. Like finding those for like some of the FPO and allowing people to have the opportunity. Because you don't know where some of those, like, you know, maybe 10, like Zoe and Dyke, like she could be an amazing commentator, like bring her in and let's hear her talk, you know, but like worth exploring and flushing that out. But I hope whatever that, like they need us to can improve that. So for me, like that's my little weird segue away from like the competition. Let's get back into it. Like, um, trying to get into the meat guys, of it. And then you're just ruining it. What was that? I said, we're trying to get into the meat of this and you're just <laughs> ruining it. No, I think it's a part of your negativity. The coverage, we talk about coverage, we talk about contracts, we talk about these things. I want to actually, did you guys see how many Eagles happened for the FPO? Yeah, and do you know how many of those were for Miss Hansen? Yeah, no, but Hmm. I think it's great that we're seeing Eagles from them, but when do you start to have conversations around their pars being moved to like more traditional like par threes? There was a few soft when I was looking at them like, oh, this is a par four? Like, I feel like this should be like, you know, you know, very much a par three. Like, what is that whole? Was it sixteen or seventeen? The one they're kind of throwing down. It was like four twenty um, downhill, and everyone was kind of eagling it on their way out. But like that mm-hmm. one, like that could have easily been a par three. People were getting there, giving like circle two looks. Like, you know, I know there's out of bounds, but when amateurs are having harder pars than the FPO. I feel like you need to start to evaluate some of those. What um, is the evaluation process for that? I don't know. And I think that's, I don't know. Like it's always been kind of superficial, arbitrary, just kind of random, like, Oh, Waco last year, they moved the par five to a par four. Um, but there wasn't any conversations. I think it's kind of local, you know, who's ever running the tournament. They decide that's usually how it is. Cause there's been, you know, tournaments here where it's like, that's a par three. And, their tournament director is like, I'm going to make this a par four. And it's like 300 feet. <laughs> so like, I think it's all to the discretion of the TD and how they design it. But 
like my point being it's like do we get so caught up in these eagles and birdies or do we start to like take some of that side of it seriously and start to make like pars a little bit more reflective because I mean, there was FPO that, yes, like the MPO had like two or three eagles, but those two or three eagle holes are also bogeyable like pretty easily and routinely. Um, where do you start to draw that line, I guess, for FPO? How do, how do they distinguish what they're going to uh, – I guess it's kind of that question you already answered, but who gets to pick what's the difference between FPO and MPO pars? Do they do it by footage, you think? Do they do it by difficulty? Or is it just kind of like, oh, that looks like a five, that looks like a I think three? I mean, I think it's at a discretion. I think there's usually conversations around like, oh, par four should usually be, you know, over 450 feet. There should be some hazards and like, you know, out of bound potential. It's not just like, you know, a full rip. And that's just like, I mean, usually baseline. I think, I mean, I threw a 533 foot uphill, giant green sand trap no way to like get to it in two par three. So like, I honestly don't know what goes through these people's mind um, with it and some of the conversations that do it. And maybe we dive deeper into that of like, how should you like decide on a par four? Because there's been, you know, 300 foot par fours at Vegas and there's been 800 foot ones. Like when do you start to draw the lines and FPO, like if anything is over 450, are you just automatically going to keep it a par four? Or are you going to start to challenge some of these like pros to, kind of step up and what's going to be better for the fpo but will that usher in like the whole then you might get into the whole transgender you know are we going to all have to play on the same field i wonder if it ever something like that will happen where they say like we're just going to make the the par for this event is going to be four for this whole whether you're fpo mpo or if they make a different transgender league yeah i don't know if we need to necessarily go down that Kind of well, I was just level. saying that it might but, open up. I wasn't saying we were going to segue to that. I'm saying if they get into that, that might be an opportunity for them to open up to that is what I was saying. Not that we're going to talk about that. I just yeah. thought that might be where they pick like, hey, instead of making this a gender decision, we're just going to leave it at this hole is a par four for all open players for amateurs. It's a par five. You know, that might be something they – the PDGA gets into, not us three. Well, I'm curious too about like, I mean, to some of those like with the FPO, like their ability, like what does it do for their mindset and how do you start to get like the FPOs to be like just better players? Like, you know, if you do that one, that par four, make it a par three, how many of them now are actually going for it versus like, oh, I'm going to half go for it, leave it wide so I don't go to bounds, but I'm going to have the easiest birdie of my life you know, and start to force them to start to like, you know, commit to 425 downhill shots with that abounds to get those birds um, and making it more challenging because we need those separator holes, just like we need some of those like kind of rebound holes um, and finding that healthy balance to it. Like, I don't think LVC with three courses, like there's a lot that goes into like running a tournament for 18 holes, let alone 54 holes. So like, I get it. Like, where do you draw the line? And you know, it's easy to hit copy and paste from the years previous because, you know, it's been working and they're, you should have seen their book. Their book's this thick. Their, their caddy book was this thick. It was ridiculous. Are they still allowed to have caddy books? I, I was listening to a podcast about this. Can you have caddy books during the tournament or no? Because yeah. yeah. I know like in PGA, you can't. Like during tournaments, you can't have it, right? Yeah, because like don't the caddies like go and do all of that stuff? 
Yeah, I was saying that's I think that's why it's called caddy book, because the caddy can look at it prior to the event. And that was kind of something that was brought up. I think it was like AJ Risley, maybe that was talking about it. Somebody was saying it's an unfair advantage that that during PDGA events, they can use a caddy book when it should just be left to skill and your practice sessions beforehand. But also Mm -hmm. the caddy book is important for disc golfers because we don't have as many uh, staff members working usually, at least on the M side. Like, you know, we don't got that, we don't got those staff to watch the out of bounds and to tell us. And so it's usually up to the card. The card has to decide if something's out of bounds, if it's on the line, it always comes down to what the card agrees upon, you know, in favor of the player. Um, Isn't the caddy book more like um, notes about each hole? Yeah. With, with out of bounds. And there's, I mean, it depends. I'm not, I'm only seen a few, uh, like I've seen like Ledgestones. Um, and it wasn't that big. It wasn't a huge book. Um, but that was, like I said, just the AM side. I haven't seen the, the MPO side or FPO. Yeah. No, no, I think they should be allowed. But I think, yeah, Kennedy books, usually like you do have their caddies going out and they're making all of these notes and jotting them down and, you know, mm-hmm. getting into like the nitty gritty of like, but I think that's also goes to like golf compared to disc golf because you're looking at the angles, you're looking at all of these different things. And so it takes the time versus like us, we're just kind of like, well, where's out of bounds? Let's navigate. <laughs> oh, this is quick green. Yeah. And, but I, I'd be more curious about that too. Like, you know, you know, guys know I come back from or come from like the magic, the gathering competitive um, card game, like this competitive side. And you had side decks written out, but you had notes written so you wouldn't have to think about when you had matchups and you're like, oh, hey, look, I'm playing Jund and I'm going to go play against Tron. What do I do? You're like, you already have it ran out. So you're like, oh, take these out, put these in, boom, quick sideboard, back to shuffling. Um, I'd be curious about like wanting to see more disc golfers take that up to where you take the time and the homework to be able to draw like a one through 18 whole plan, writing it up, you know, having those conversations with yourself. And then the variables within that. So, like, you're seeing people not stepping up. I think that would help out a lot, especially, like, younger play- – or, like, you know, not younger, but less experienced players as they're starting to go into tournaments of how to, you know, accurate, accurately, like, plan. But Well, and that all comes down to preparation. It's going to be – think any sport. Just, like, people that get super prepared for a Magic the Gathering game, and then you also have people that will put no effort into disc golf where they just want to put a six-pack in there and walk out and sling some disc into a tree. So it just all depends, I think, on the competitive nature of the person, part of it. Like, I bet you Macbeth probably has books for everything because that's just how he is. I feel like he, just as a competitor, probably takes the notes, puts in the work, and he wants to get the results. Where other people may not find that as necessary, but are they getting the results? You know, the guy, they said Kobe used to come in and he would be the first one in the gym and the last one out. He probably had notes on everyone. And yeah, showed, Alan but, Iverson never went to practice. <laughs> yeah, we talk in practice. So that is, I think, there probably are people that are making notes, and whether it be mental or written down, but I think that just shows if you are competitive or not, and it's just kind of a spectrum of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing I wanted to bring back up um, about the pars between the FPO and MPO, like if you look at Vegas – there's 80, about, about 85 MPOs that went under par and only 19 FPO went under par for that whole tournament on all the rounds. And that's with the pars being different. Really? I think come, yeah. So I think it might come down to how FPOs average on a course to fine tune it. Because, you know, only 19 
uh, players going um, below par after three rounds, that's not that many. And that's with the reduced pars. Something to think about. Yeah, but that also, like, I mean, that kind of goes, goes back to my point of how do we make these players better? You know, are you going, like, are they going to get better by, like, missing these par fours because they're not going for it and then they just kind of mess up with the layup? Like, you know, the art, there is an art to layups, and I found that out, like, the hard way last week. Like, it's not just something like, you know, when you're, like, 400, 400, 400, you're like, oh, let me just lay this 320 up. It's not something that's easily done. Um, and so it's just like, well, like, if we're trying to improve, like, the FPO and make it more competitive, what's going to, like, elevate some of these games? And right now, I mean, you you look at the top, what, 40 or, like, MBO, like, disc golfers, and they're kind of interchangeable. I think Vegas proved that. There was a top 10 of people you probably forgot are out there competing every week. Like they showed up and reminded you like, like Scott Withers showing up, like, Hey, he belonged there. He was top 10 finished. Luke Humphreys. He's more than just, uh, you know, skins match hosts like Justin Tanner, like, Hey, he got injured last year. He's back and he's still level. Like we have all of that. And it's all interchangeable. And I think FPO is still playing catch up. And yes, they're, they're three to four or about five competitors like in the last years are starting to look like 10 now but how do you grow that 10 to be 20 and 30 and make that such a competitive field to be similar to like the MPO and I think challenging them to you know step up and do these things are, are going to help in the long run um, and I'm not saying take away all the eagles or all the like the eagle bowl holes but I'm saying like maybe some of these holes that are going to challenge them and they can probably get by with the par three like do it and see and see what it does because you know it won't it necessarily won't make the difference on that back end of those people but it might make a difference on that front end where you know you don't have a 30 stroke difference between first and you know 10th yeah so are you saying make it a harder course to either push them to be better or maybe distinguish the top from the bottom yeah i mean you look at npo what have they been doing They've been stretching the course out longer and longer, and these pros are throwing further oh, and further. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with that because you look at, like, what the human body can achieve, and I think we've achieved throwing a disc as far as we can absolutely possible. I think eventually we have to stop throwing further and further in, like, sake of the pros' like bodies because you're looking at more and more injuries, like, lining up and – having to throw 600 feet 54 times plus is going to wreck someone's body regardless of who you are. Um, so I feel like there's a happy medium where like MPO can dial it back, throw up more control, put Roy G Guerrero on the pro tour, take off a golf course. Like I think there's arguments for that for the MPO, but I think they look differently, but I think FPO challenge their arms, challenge the distance, push them like just a little bit more. And I think that's kind of maybe the distance. And I think for this weekend, that's kind of some of the things that I've seen like happen. Oh man, those girls can rip. Just rip. like, it looks so effortlessly too. I'm like, oh man, like I'm two foot taller than that girl. I bet you I can throw farther. Nah, nope. <laughs> she just bombs. And I love it. So some of those girls, like we were talking earlier about, you know, everyone always thought of when you think of who won the event for the last couple of years, it was like, did Paige win it or did Cat win it? You know, that's what it was. And now you have all these Europeans coming over and Tatar got big. I feel like with her grace, like that was like, got her name out there. She got on a recognizable disc that people love. So people are like, yeah, I like that disc. 
and she also with COVID, she never came over and played. So it was just kind of a mix of everything where her and Evelina weren't able to play. So it was just like Cat and Paige over and over for years would just win, win, win. So it, it is kind of cool seeing that um, it's more competitive. And I think that's going to drive them to be better. Like Paige and Cat might actually have to start, you know, realizing there's someone right on their tail. They've been playing bad, but it might force them to, you know, stretch it out or be better, but that's not going to change course layout. So, yeah. yeah. And I will talk about the people that are on, the, on their tails too all the time, like Own and um, who's it, Haley King. And she'll pop up there. I feel like Haley needs, you know, she's, she's new, she's younger, she's got some mental game to work out. Um, I mean, Ella, what she finished? Ella finished six. She's going to take down that W this year. I'm, I'm calling it now. Ella Hansen will take down a win in a Pro Tour event. She is throwing so good. She's having these silly little mistakes that I and I, you can see it in her when she when she does it. Like, damn, what did I just do? And I think she can fine tune herself throughout the season and and come up with a W sometime. No, I agree with that. I can see that happening. And you know, I will say too, like we talked about all of this brand switching. You know, talk about Katrina Allen stepping in, switching brands, and then winning the first major of the year. Yeah. That is impressive to me. But also, when are we going to stop talking about Paige Pierce being the GOAT and start having legitimate conversation around Katrina Allen being the GOAT? Did you guys all hear the statistic about their matchups and playoffs? Katrina Allen is up six, like to the, I think, what, six out of 10 of their matchups? How many, how many years? Like, well, they're all of their, like, the playoffs, their playoffs oh, okay. matchups. Because they were talking about them going into playoffs. But Katrina Allen holds the edge. She's the five-time world champion. She just continues to always, like, be that little bit of step ahead of Paige Pierce. Like, wh- like whenever we're going to start to have the conference, she just switched to brand, like, and won. I feel like those conversations need to start to gear up because, dang, did she just kind of, you know, she just, she won. And she, I feel like she has Paige Pierce kind of pegged to the point to where it's like, Hey, let Paige Pierce mess up. I'm going to kind of play this correctly and lay up, and you know we're going to challenge that. But I mean, yeah, for me, I, I like say when her putting got better. But watching Vegas, you saw that happen. Mm-hmm. You saw her putting very confidently. Um, it's it was like a whole different uh, Katrina on the putting green. Um, yeah. So that's, it's good to see because that's that's where she was lacking um, confidence and big time lacking. You know, I felt like she didn't care when she got up to putt. And when you you know you see her at Vegas, and it's like a completely different person on putting. Um, and it, maybe it was the uh, the change in discs and the change in company that's backing her to support her. Um, there could be a lot of factors that kind of gave her the edge. And you know, whatever she did during the off season, that's always a big factor too. Yeah, it's almost like the uh, whole LeBron Jordan, where Jordan has more rings, but if you look at every other statistic, LeBron is actually better. But I'm not getting into that because I grew up watching Jordan. But yeah, Jordan's a goat. Like, don't forget that. Like, and for me, like, there's no comparing like different generations, but we're comparing active generations together. Like, I mean, there's been a push this this push this off season with Ricky Wysocki having an argument for being the goat. You know, and so it's like, well, I see, I hear this push and I see this push and I can understand where they're coming from. But yet, I feel like Katrina kind of gets overlooked for a lot of that kind of FPO push that people have just settled in. Paige Pierce is the GOAT, move on, 
but it's like I don't think like that's the case anymore and I think Katrina's starting to show that like not only with the world's win but this is like very to me this win was very reminiscent of her winning worlds where Paige decided to go for it went out of bounds lost worlds to Katrina Katrina like the same thing Paige Pierce went for it went out of bounds lost Vegas <laughs> you know well lost the playoff it's okay to say we can't talk about what we don't know but it's like it was very reminiscent of that and to me like that shows a level of experience that maybe people don't get. Like when Drew Gibson. Gannon, I was going to say Drew Gibson, Gannon Burr. Same yeah, like Drew thing. Gibson, like he veteraned him. He, right. He out, out moved him. He went jokery. Like everyone's going for it, going for it, going for it to win it. He went jokery, EV seven, tap it. <laughs> and Gannon, who was probably hitting that put all practice rounds, all tournaments missed it when it mattered most. And that's like, you know, like, yes, Katrina's putts are whoa, but when do you start to give credit where credit is due to that mental game, that that level of like planning? Like Sexton, his level of like safeton, the level of like prestige that he gets for that isn't talked about like with Katrina. And I was like, I don't know if like I want this to turn into like a Katrina's a go, but I'm just saying like, when do we start to take notice of what's happening in front of our eyes? You know what I mean? Like like, yes, we talk about LeBron James, but everyone's talking about Curry now making a legitimate case. Everyone's talking about Giannis starting to make a push and, like, these next waves, and nobody's missing it. But when it comes to, like, FPO, it's so easy to overlook. What is like, – is Paige, what, a three-time champion? She's five-time. Five-time. And then and then what's Cat? Five-time. So they're both five-time. So then you can't even make the argument based on that anymore because that's the whole big – I've heard the Wysocki and Macbeth – argument and they've even thrown in some other names where like you know Macbeth finished first this many times and Ricky was second this many times but then Macbeth would be down here so there's always many different arguments to be made and people will look at the statistic that benefits their side usually so but I I agree with you I think Kat's going to be a instead of just being overlooked and just being known like when I thought of Kat before this time Thanks, Ethan. Ethan just corrected me. Cat's two time. I thought she was five time. Oh yeah. my gosh. See, now you're wrong. See, now I think you're 100% wrong. Yeah, I was checking. I take back everything I just said. You're wrong. I thought she was ah, too many. Maybe I'm thinking Shut Valerie Jenkins. See, yeah, no respect like, on Cat. Can't even get the stats right. No, but like, so I was going back. Like, whenever I thought of Cat, I thought of Bad Putter. Like Josh was saying, like, oh, yeah. I thought of that video like on. Gibson, right? Like, yeah, I thought of the video on YouTube where she was like wearing her prodigy bag and went up to putt, like, from a tap in <laughs> and missed like three times. That's all I thought. Like, man, I think I could have made one of those. But, you know, I, I definitely would have got smoked by her every other time. So it's. It's, I think you're making a valid point with that argument. I think she will win more, so she might end up winning five. I mean, I'm not saying Paige won't win more, but there's more than just Paige more. now. <laughs> no, but yeah. let's get to the let's get let's get to the MPO. Like, all right, like we want to talk about like bad putting. Drew Gibson was always the man off the tee, but his putting woes were there like for years, and everyone's like, if he can get his putting figured out, get his putting figured out. Talk about switching sponsors, EB7. And, you know, you always have these people that are like, oh, my bag's been missing a CD2. I just got signed with this mania. Look at this amazing disc and the things like, like, it's very robotic. So when Drew Gibson came out and he was like, oh, I signed with EB7, the Penrose is what I've been missing. It's kind of like, you know, kind of fog because you hear that so much. But God dang, was it what he's missing? Upshots, 
layups, putts, jump putts. Drew Gibson just jumped, like, literally into, like, Conrad and KJ territory with jump putts. He's hitting them consistently. He's banging them. And he's doing it with, like, a two-step. Just boom, boom, boom with his shots. Like, this guy, I mean, I was amazed at his whole entire tournament. To talk about, like, being out round one, nobody giving him a chance to win it. Like, this tournament was probably one of my favorites, watching that roller coaster of everybody. Like, oh, Dickerson, boom, lead card. Seppo, lead card. Like, and then fall-offs. And, I mean, it had it all. I'm, this is probably one of my favorite tournaments. Man, and Drew Gibson was cold-blooded during the during the playoffs, man. Like, you could see Gannon Burr was, like, nervous and anxious. And, like, as soon as he threw, like, Drew would just pick one out of his bag and be like – and just throw it and walk. And then he would just, like, look back. I don't know who the girl was, his caddy. Is that his girlfriend, wife, fiance? I don't know. But he would just look back at her and be like, all right. And then just walk by like, holy smokes, man. <laughs> Dude was just dripping confidence. Yeah. Yeah, but Gannon, Gannon held in. He held he in. He did. Many playoff. Kudos to him. And I was blown away by the kid. Like even like after any time that Drew did a great shot, like Gannon would go up and give him a prop. You know, like that just says a lot about the about the guy. Well, yeah. Gannon wasn't trying to lose. Like he was not losing, like at all. Like hole eighteen, slid out of bounds. Like perfect shot. I thought. Like and then just the scoot was heartbreaking. Yeah. Like. Hole one, big putt, big putt. Hole three, shank, and a ridiculous touchy 400-plus forehand to push the birdie. Like, Gannon was not wanting to dip out. Or hole five, sorry, not three. Like, mm -hmm. Gannon wasn't going to, like, lose. And he just, I mean, I think, like I said, like, I think he didn't lose. I think he just got out veteran. Like, watching Drew Gibson, Jokery, EV7, that has to be so, like, because you're walking up with him, and then you see him execute that perfectly. And then, you know, you're like, you know he's going to hit that putt. So, like, all that pressure and it's just like, I don't think he lost it. I just think, you know, he just felt that pressure, and I think that's great for him. Like, 17-year-old, to be on that stage, to have this entire future ahead of him, like, talk about being the next big thing if he chooses to. Like, he still has to graduate high school and decide if he wants to go to college or not. Like, he might not choose this. <laughs> he might not choose this life, and that's a crazy thing to me. Like. But. We always hear leave it, leave it on the court, leave it on the field, and he did, man. I mean, for that last hole, he went for it. He he could have played up, he could have played the safe route and then forced Drew's hand, but he went for it because I think earlier he had been successful in that throw. But they also said he switched discs. I don't know if that had to do with wind condition or what, and I don't know what he threw, but they said he went for a disc, and they're like, oh, he threw something different last time, and I can't remember what it was. Like it was a D one or D two, I think. Yeah, but. I mean, he he hit band. If you hit band and for a playoff, I mean, kudos to you, man. That was you went for it. Awesome. I mean, it was a hard shot too. You know, yeah, you it's know, definitely standing in sand, and it's elevated now, and it's it's at a spot where you're surrounded by people. Like that's a lot of pressure for a 16 year old kid. And it's do or die. It's make yeah. this or you're done. Yeah, and you know the the embrace that Drew gave him after after he missed it, and what drew has said to gannon after it just shows a lot about drew and i mean i'm i'm a fan i'm a fan of the guy like well he, i think he it's a good reminder right like with all of that you see like team sports or other competition and it's like oh i beat you blah blah blah. you know some of that trash talking like 
it just shows that we're not competing against all of these people. Yes, like Drew Gibson and Gannon were in the playoff, but it still comes down to their shots, the course, their execution. Like, we're not saying Drew Gibson beat Gannon because Gannon beat Gannon. He missed that putt. He overthought, like, you know, and that, that camaraderie, that friendship, that we're going to play again with each other. Let's, you know, share this moment together, I think is important. And I feel like a lot of people need to adopt some of that mentality because it's not me versus you out there. It's, you know, us playing our game out here and we just happen to have the same score. So let's try to see, like, who's going to walk away with the trophy and the payday. Um, and I think that's, like, the big difference because that's where you can have those conversations. Like, it's not like Gannon glaring at him, like, walking away, like, wait till next time. I'm going to get you. Like, this is the last time. Like, you know what you see in some of the other sports, you know. And so, for me, I thought that was, like, really amazing. But I will, like, we don't need to – I think a lot of people already know about Drew and Gannon. I would be remiss if I don't talk about the resurgence more in depth. I know I mentioned it earlier, but you want to talk about pros, like Heinberg doing Heinberg things, but Luke Humphreys, I was excited about. Tristan Tanner, I was excited about. Adam Hammes, I am subtly excited about because in this competitive field, like Hammes decided to come and like you're talking about momentum from last year. Like Hammes is building that momentum from last year ever since winning master or yeah master's cup at de la viega he has constantly been top tending and i think he's going overlooked with that but he's been super sneaky um why Saki with the seventh finish um he switched brands and he's like seventh like so he's still top tending and he's going to be poised for that push and then scott withers local oregonian he was like 20th last year or like 27th or something last year Going on tour for the first official time in his career where he's going to go full-time on the tour and top 10 is his first one. He got seventh. Like, tied with, like, Waisaki, like, that's a good finish. You know that's a good finish. Yeah. And so I'm super pumped at that. Like, like the pros are here. Like, <laughs> I'm just – it just speaks with our depth, like, in the MPO, and I don't know, I'm excited. And you're going to see, like, I think a lot of great golf this year. I'm just in my head thinking Oregonian or, or, or Oregonite. I don't know. No, Oregonian, <laughs> like I said. You know, like the know, Oregonian just, said. Dude, I'm just, just East Coast. No, no, I wasn't saying you're wrong. I was just saying like, like, Oregonite. Oh, I, never knew what, I never knew what that was. Oregonian, Oregonite, Oregonier. I don't know. Sorry, my I brain. I told just, you, you do know. That's the thing. Yeah. It's stubborn for no reason. Whoa. I was saying I didn't, I didn't process that myself. I'm a Marylander. So I thought, like, oh, so that's how you're saying you're wrong, Call? Why are you so hostile tonight? It's Oregonian, man. They're hostile creatures. Guys, please. If you want to make it about you, we'll make it about you real quick. No, I'm just thinking in my head. I was like, oh, that's how you say it. Like, calm down. This is supposed to be a friendly podcast, guys. Hot takes. When when did we ever say this is supposed to be a friendly podcast? I don't think – in all of these nine episodes, I was ever like, hey, you know what? This is going to be your family, PG slash G. Everyone That's happy. That's what I've been telling podcast. all my church friends. I always say, well, like, listen to this podcast. your church friends. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dang, yo. Let's talk about the development. Like, I was surprised, and I think a lot of people were surprised, to see Ezra Aderhold's forehand. But probably more surprising is to starting to see Heimberg forehand. What is up with that? If I see Conrad forehand, I'm flipping out. <laughs> I think, I mean, go ahead. 
I was going to say both of them are not known for being like, I don't think I've ever seen them forehand in a tournament before Vegas, other than maybe getting out like a, of a shot where they, that's all they had. And it was like yeah. a throw out. But I think they've probably realized that if they want to be relevant and remain in the top, you know, whatever number they still are, that they might have to add this to the repertoire. I mean, you got Eagle learning to throw left-handed now, so they're probably thinking if he can throw left-handed, maybe I need to work on a forehand. I threw a left-handed 200-foot shot today. Oh, let's make it about Paige. No, oh, um, it's just this is right, but but I think like for me, I think it's a like concession or acknowledgement that they can't succeed without that forehand. And I think Heinberg was up there with Conrad with never forehanding and doing backhand for everything. Um, and I don't think, I mean, I, the rumor mill was that Ezra like didn't want to settle in on his forehand until he found a sponsor and he didn't want to like bounce around with his forehand discs, which kind of makes sense. But for me, I'm also the other side where it's like, you know what? The Firebird is probably the most easily replicated disc out there. Every brand has a comparable one of an understable and overstable. Like that's probably the least thing you want to do. Like for me, like I think learning a turnover shot, it's more touchier that there's discs like companies that don't have the turnover disc um, in the repertoire and finding that is harder. But that's that's beside the point. But I think for me, like it's a concession and acknowledgement that this game is going to need a forehand and not just a serviceable one that you can get out of jail with you're going to legit need a forehand. James Conrad disagrees. And, and but yeah, I mean, if think about it, if if you are not very good at turnover shots or wind can play a lot into it, forehand is I think a very important part of a game that almost every pro needs. I mean, I I can't it's hard to imagine being a pro and not knowing how to do one of the more, I don't want to say basic, but one of the more common throws. Think about how many baseball players pick disc golf, and that's how they throw naturally from the get-go. But I don't think it's not that they know, because I still would say Heinberg has probably, you know, top 54 hand that he never throws. Like, he had, like, so just, the times that he showed it on camera, they were very solid. Um, I just think, like, it comes down to that, but it's like... When you think you, they choose not to use it? I think it's very active. Like, I think a lot of them, like, you, you, I don't think Ezra develops the forehand that he developed in two to three months. Yeah. Because that's, that's a seasoned, you know, forehand. And I think they actively choose to use it. You know, I think Conrad does it. And, like, I mean, I only can talk for myself because that's all I know, right? It's like, I can tell, like, oh, yeah, I have maybe four or five, like, legit tee shots with it from 300 that I can control um, before my arm starts to hurt. So I, I chose not to do it as much. Um, but I've been working on it and I'm getting like my strength and my routine down. But I think for whatever reason they chose not to. And I can see like sticking with a backhand and just consistently like going backhand, backhand reinforces a lot of that off the tee when you're constantly doing like left, right, left, right, forehand, like all those angles start to challenge in your mind. Like there's sometimes I, I step up to a tee box, do a turnover. And I'm like, Oh shit, I have a forehand now. I should have forehanded that. Like that happens a lot. <laughs> Um, and so I feel like with the pros, I think a lot of them just actively choose not to. And I think there's a lot of them that have that forehand that's, you know, past 350 that they don't do. It was something they used on a regular basis, not in a tournament where they thought I'm not, I don't feel comfortable enough to use my forehand here. But like if they were playing a, 
a skins match or something for fun, like locally, they would do it? I think so. I mean, if Heinberg's playing with Sexton, you think he's not asking him about his forehand? You think they're not having practice rounds, conversations? You know, it's like, true. because, I mean, you've been, you played rounds with friends. You guys talk disc golf so much. You talk different shot shapes. Talk, you know, like, I'm pretty sure, like, Heinberg's got a little bit of, like, you know, free lessons from Sexton around his forehand. And just chose um, not to during tournaments. Exactly. That makes sense. Because you're, 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 you're doing what? You're operating with your most realistic, highest percentage shot that's going to minimize bogeys. And for him, it's obviously his backhand. For me, it's obviously my backhand, right? Me and Heinberg, same. Um, no. <laughs> but I think that's what they're doing, and I think that's how they're operating. Like, even Paul McBeth, right? Like, he has the Simon lines. He has so much power with his shots. Like, you, it's just surprising because of how he plays and how he chooses to play, but he goes to his percentage, right? He brings analytics into it and his statistics, and he leans on that where he knows he's going to have a safer. Like, the reason why when pros step up to a 300-foot shot and they're all going Raptor, Firebird, Scepter, Spike Heisers is because it's a higher percentage shot to 300-foot than a mid-range or a putter 300-foot. Even though they can and they do, in that position with the wide open thing, they're all going spike Heiser because it's just a higher percentage. And that's why I feel like all of these players are doing. So, I mean, more, more conversation around learn your stats, learn your best shots and rely on them. Even if like sometimes the shot doesn't call for it. Are you saying they shouldn't take the risk? Are you saying they should always percentage or are you saying that it doesn't hurt to learn something new? Well, I mean, I'm saying if you're in a competitive environment, in a tournament, lean towards the percentages and the statistics, but know when you need to make those challenges and those differences, right? Like, yeah. Drew Gibson had all the power in the world to go for that shot that he wanted on, and he went jokery, right? So knowing that difference and knowing, like, yes, he can probably land it in that little circle or that little spot to get the tap in eagle, but he also knew he can easily land in this, like, sand. And so it's like, well, I mean, the, but the more you're able to have those conversations with yourself in your game and starting to realize, like, well, why am I throwing this shot? And it's not because this is what it's called for on this tee box. Then I think the better you're going to be. Yeah. That's kind of the same thing where you're saying you got to push yourself, you know? Always be pushing yourself. You're never, you're never going to improve if you stay the same. So um, one thing I, I do want to point out is Eagles last round. Um, <laughs> We don't want to talk about all these steps forward, so let's talk about the step backwards. No, this is a step forward. This is a step <laughs> forward for him, is that on the last round, he saw his chance of winning slip away. And how he held himself the rest of the round, I applaud him. That's a big change from the eagle we saw last season. Two so, seasons ago. I think last season he held himself pretty good. But last yeah. season he was winning. Last yeah. season Broken he call. had one. Yeah, last, last season he had one not top five finish or top 10 so two years ago what he these this years continue to roll on by so 21st yeah 21st on this i mean yeah. that's low that's a that's a low lead number. card to 21st that is tough mm -hmm. yeah and, and like but to hold yourself the way he did and you saw him do some fun shots i applaud i applaud him that's a that's a different eagle than i would have thought would have been on that course for what happened from hole one to hole 18 so much could have drove him to a point where he got upset, punched the ground, punched the disc, you know, do an eagle thing. But he didn't. He held his composure, and I applaud him. 
Yeah. I mean, he, he's doing it without a left hand or a forehand, right? Yeah. Like the whole tournament lead card without a forehand. That's impressive. So, yeah, no props to Eagle for sure. But we got here. Who else we got here? <laughs> uh, I think it was a fun it. tournament. Yeah, it was, it was really fun to watch. I mean, both M- MPO and FPO, final round, I'm on my seat, edge of my seat watching that. Well, it was very enjoyable. Let's shed some light on the rumor mill about Paul. Um, he chose – I mean, the rumor is that he chose not to play LBC because he doesn't necessarily have the adequate time to prepare for all three courses and that he doesn't want to do that. So he kind of picked and chose his start in Memorial. So let's not talk about Memorial. We'll save those spoilers for next week. But let's talk about that option and talk about that, that prepara- or preparation that goes into some of that stuff. And, you know, do you agree with him, like, removing himself from that tournament – or do you like think like, hey, it's a level and playing field. Everyone has the same amount of time to warm up and prep, like play it because we want to see you. Like, where do you guys fall within that? I mean, I I'll start with this one. I mean, what you play and what you don't play is your is your choice. I thought it was really weird for him not to be go to Vegas, being the caliber of player that he is. Um, at a certain point, he's played these courses. He knows these courses fairly well. And to if that is why he did not go, I don't really think it was a good idea on, you know, from a fan perspective from the outside. It's like, I want to watch you play. You're a you're, you know, your top five MPO player. And I missed it because you felt like you didn't get enough practice. If that is the reason, I don't really I don't really like the, that reason very much at all. Well, for me, like, where's the obligation, right? Like, you look at the NBA, and there was teams that were actively resting their players, and people were paying the tickets and not seeing the stars that they wanted to see. So the NBA got involved and was like, hey, you know, you got to have these people unless you have, like, this legitimate thing, which leads to a whole different conversation. I'm not saying I want the PGGA to reinforce, like, all these pros to be there, but where do you start to drive the line where, hey, you're a million-dollar player, and you missed the season kickoff for the Pro Tour – what does that do for Discraft? What does that do for the like PDGA um, and some of these fans and these viewerships? And like, I'm not saying like it's Paul's responsibility, but when you start to have that conversation around like, how do we like how do we gain access and guarantee some of this access to them? And sometimes making sure like we go above and beyond because it's not even Paul, right? Like, you know, if some like you know top ten pro didn't want to go because they couldn't afford to, like a Matty O or something, like a, like last year or the year before. When do you step in and be like, well, this is for the fans, so let's cover $3,000 of this to get them there? Um, but for me, it's like, when do we start to draw those lines and have those own conversations? Because it's like, for me, like, I understand Paul wants to, like, he probably, like you guys said earlier, he probably has his own notebook, his caddy book full of every single hole and having 54 holes mapped out for the three rounds and the championship round on top of the varying of the wind and the no wins and all that stuff like that's a lot to digest in like two to three days and especially because like they didn't have just pros can play whatever they had no pros after 9 30 on this course like they had courses allocated to the am players the fpo players the pro players and they couldn't like deviate from that so i can see that limiting it as well where like if you want to spend all day on one course or two courses like being able to do that versus being like well i can't go over there now so I feel like, too, like some of the obligation needs to then be put on that, um, you know, organizer to allow the adequate time for them to prepare. But 
I know I'm throwing out a lot out there, but yeah, it was for me. It was crazy not to see him out there. Yeah, who's gonna make the choice of what's adequate though? Because you know, someone might like Paul might require or might think they need you know five practice rounds before they feel comfortable playing. Where someone else, another pro, might be like, "Let me run through it once. I'm I'll be fine." So see, that's where like I feel like you challenge the PDGA because they're becoming so bona fide and so legit. They need to start to have conversations with these. Bring in these players. Have these conversations. Ask Paul. If he says five days and, you know, Joe Schmo says one day, like, well, not five days, five practice rounds, then lean towards the, like, it's better to be, like, safe than sorry, but allow a space being, like, well, three days, you have the chance to do five practice rounds, and if you don't do the five practice round, that's on you, but set a precedent and reinforce that with the TDs, which I feel like the PDJ isn't. I feel like this year is going to be like PDGA set a precedent, set a precedent, set a precedent. And they're not going to because they've leaned so much on tournament directors, organizers, volunteers. It's no longer that kind of grassroots organization anymore. You need to take ownership of that and like lean into it so that you can get that. Because if you have three courses, two rounds on a course should be minimum, right? Like you should be able to play a course a minimum two times in order to get those fields, make those adjustments. And like, if I can say like, that's a good minimum, I'm pretty sure like the pros have more definitive reasons or wise of, and like how's they can, you know, accurate, accurately prep. Well, and I think that, like you said, if you want them to be more legitimate, I think they should have a designated time. Like if, if PDGA wants this to become uh, a monetary thing where, they are making more money off of their pros. They got to give their pros more time to practice and to prepare. Think about it. Do they open Madison Square Garden to the high school, local high school team the night of a game? No, it's shut down. It's set aside for the Knicks to play there. So if LVC wants to set aside two days only for pros, and then they might have a mixed time, that would probably get more pros out there. If you could guarantee them this much time to practice – like, Paul, I don't think Paul did it for money. Like, I don't think Paul is like, man, I can't spend $3,000 and go to Vegas. Like, I, that's not a problem for no. him. So it was probably, in my head, he either thought, A, I'm not prepared. B, I don't know if I can win it, so I don't want to even throw my hat in the ring. Or it just was something that didn't interest him, and maybe he thought he had a better opportunity with Memorial being fully rested. So we might go over tonight, guys, because I want to dive a little bit more into that. I'm just giving you a little prep. But but when you start to, like, start picking and choosing, we want to watch people compete, right? Like, if you go into it, like, thinking, like, I can't win or I don't have enough time to win and prepare, I don't – like, I understand, like, you want to win and you need to win, but I want to see you compete. And part of competing is losing. It's learning how to lose and carrying that loss to do better. You know, like, just like the pressure of winning, Drew Gibson going to Memorial is going to feel the pressure of having to repeat and having to do that. It's not the same as, oh, hey, Gannon Burr, he lost. He was one stroke short. So that hunger of wanting to come back is going to do that. Like, we want to watch these people compete. And sometimes, like, when the Blazers don't make it to the championship, it's not like, oh, man, that season freaking sucked. How dare you? It's like, hey, we made it a playoff push. We fell out in the playoffs. People were writing us off. We weren't a lottery team, they said. Or we were a lottery team, they said. Here we are in the playoffs. Cool. That was a good season. Like, we want to see, like, like Ricky Wysocki getting seventh. I don't think anyone's being like, oh, man, 
you regret your signing now? Like, no, like, hey, look, you got a brand new bag and you made a big push. Heimberg, you're still so close to breaking through. Those are the storylines and those are the conversations I want to start to see. And like, we don't want to just be like, oh, like Eagle last year, like I kind of didn't like it when he only did eight tournaments, the eight pro tours or whatever, and he won four of them. Like, I want to start to see like what you're like at, you know, Waco and when you struggled. And I want to see you do another course like that and be successful in it and making those improvements and that growth because this healthy competition is like, as a fan, what I watch. Yeah. Well, I think as we see more pros making more money, you're going to see more pros at more events. The reason why, not because they are doing it for the money, it's because they can afford it. Think about Dickerson, who didn't do a lot of what – did he not go out west or was it out east? He played most of his stuff like Tennessee and stuff because that's what he could afford. Him and his wife were in a RV or a camper, and he only stayed in that local area for monetary reasons. Now that he has this new – uh, contract with Discraft, I think he even said, I'm going to be at more tournaments because that's what he is financially comfortable in doing. So if you have more players making more money, I think you'll see them at more events. Um, and I wonder if the PDGA could say, like, if you are going to be a pro player, you have to do 10 out of this many, or they might have to make a stipulation. But then it also gets into a gray area where you feel like you're forcing people to compete when maybe they're not injured, but maybe they thought like, hey, something didn't feel right and I don't want to tweak it. So that's where like, but that's where like a governing body like comes into play and you have those conversations. NBA, NFL, like PDGA or PGA all have these sanctioning bodies that kind of overlook some of these things like, and you could write into the contracts, but it's like, even if it's like they PDGA doesn't. Like, when does Discraft be like, hey, you know what? 10 years, $10 million, 10 events. You know, you're going to be at all the PDGA because he is the presence, right? Like, yes, Dickerson, yes, you know, Ezra Aderhold and Brody Smith are part of Discraft and all of the other Discraft pros, but he is the presence. And then everybody kind of falls in line with that, you know? And so, like, where he goes, a lot of the money and the fans go and – and I'm not saying, like, this isn't obviously to attack Paul McBeth. He's just, like, the prime example of this. And when you start to, like, have some of these conversations in regards to other pros and keeping things, like, in line with that, because, like, if you're going to do the pro tour, like, commit to the pro tour. And if you can't do one, then have those reasons, right? I'm injured. I can't travel. I don't have funding. But have those, like, those understand and written and the PGA can make, like, PDGA can make exceptions for that. But that's where, like, you got to start to set a precedent because when a pro tour champion is crowned, we want to see it, like, in real time. You know, like, Nathan. I wouldn't be surprised if there was something, like, you mentioned how Discraft would want, like, million dollars, 10 years. Like, if, if Ricky Wysocki signed this big deal and was like, hey, I'm not going to play any tournaments, I have a feeling Dynamic would not be very happy. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's even something in his contract where Discraft said, like, Paul, you have to play this many events, this many a tier events in this long so maybe he's just picking and choosing which sucks as a fan but maybe i wonder if that's where he's thinking i'm going to play the memorial so i'm not playing vegas which you know you have so many pros playing both though but and I, the, there are different levels yeah um and memorials on the way to waco and i know but and you talk about like the extended like toll on the body and now you had four days of tournaments four days straight of playing memorials what three days four days still yeah on top of Waco, which is going to be another four days, like, 
and on top of traveling on top of these things and when you start to kind of create like this healthy schedule anyways that might be a conversation for a different time i don't want to go too much over guys let's go to our closing thoughts josh you've been silent so give i us have your worst give us the worst um you know <laughs> uh, i think drew gibson and katrina allen have shown us that you trust the process whatever they did in the off season to keep those repetitions up on their putting paid off i mean i've been getting out a lot more to get my putting reps in and it's paying off can i beat Paige? not yet but soon not yet but soon can't be that hard trust the process go out there and practice we're going to get better absolutely cody uh i am just i am giddy that disc golf is back where i can just like go on youtube and look and like oh i can watch live events or i can be excited because the weather's getting nicer people are playing so um check out some streaming check out um watch some events you can it's free usually for most things next day i know dgn costs money but you can watch jomez you can watch gatekeeper you can watch gk pro um find a stream you like and find some commentators you like and get involved don't just look and find out what who won on facebook but get immersed in it have fun with it i think you're start enjoying um watching it and playing it more the more you involve yourself with get immersed in the game and have some fun with it well my my closing thoughts are like simple support the little guy everyone's like now we have a big three we have a big three media company gk pro gatekeeper media and jomez we have a big three but don't forget the little guys you know memorial is happening this weekend and jomez isn't there but disc golf guy is so check out disc golf guy he has lead like lead card coverage he's doing things but like you know ch sports are doing the northwest golf we have all these amazing filming that's taking place like central coast like, don't forget the little guys. Don't just like, oh, well, Jomez isn't doing it. I have no disc golf to watch. Find them. They're out there. Like and subscribe, support, because they still have great content. I was watching the memorial today. Oh, my God. There were some amazing conversations between Nate Perkins and the disc golf guy around not only what was going on, but some of, like, just kind of, like, normal things. Like, my take about 300-foot hyzers came from that because I'm like, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that. That makes a lot of sense. Like, check out these guys because – you know, there's like I said, they're small and they're doing it, but they're doing it because they're passionate and they're loving it, right? It's not about the money for them. They're going out and making it work. So don't forget them. And with the little guys is us. It seems like everyone's doing a podcast. We're super appreciative of all of you fans. So anything you can do, like, share, talk about us. Any way you can support us is huge because we're having a blast doing this. Next week is week 10, double digits. We are on Spotify, YouTube. And now we have a portfolio of 10. So you can listen to us for 10 hours talking next week. So that to me is exciting. And I don't know why you're choosing to do it, but I truly appreciate it, guys. So with that, keep jamming it in the rub. <laughs>